You seek the key, but first you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system, up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant, with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. Okay, let's do some quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. That's obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. To reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. Here's the thing. Information is power. Information is money. Literally, the currency of today's world of, of entrepreneurship is information. And if you could bring all of the, your, the information about your business into one dashboard, this is incredibly valuable. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of the truth about your business. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all of your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. This is so valuable. You just hit a button and you can see all the information about your business instead of having to like call five different departments and get all these emails and put it all together and make sense of it. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Backed by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash james. netsuite.com slash james. netsuite.com slash james. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is The James Altucher Show. Today on The James Altucher Show. So there's always a good reason and a real reason. And so a very good reason that I have these next guests on, Lori Gottlieb and Guy Winch, is that they have a great podcast that they've just launched and it's already had great episodes. It's called Dear Therapists. They're both therapists. You might remember Lori has been on the podcast many times, and she's also written the huge, huge best-selling book, Maybe You Should Talk to Someone, which is about her experiences both as a therapist and as a patient. And Guy Winch has had 20 million, over 20 million views on his TED Talk videos, and he also writes the uh, Dear Guy advice column for TED. Together now, they do this podcast, Dear Therapists, which... People come to them with problems. They, they almost like do a therapy session and it's like we're a fly on the wall of that. And then they have the people back to see if the advice worked, which is always interesting. I've never seen that done. The, the episodes are fascinating and we talk about them. So that's the good reason I wanted to have them on. The real reason is that I always like to have a free therapy session 
and I had two excellent therapists right in front of me. So I slightly turned this into my own personal therapy session as well. I hope it works for you as well as it did for me. Super excited to once again have Lori Gottlieb on the podcast. She's the she's a therapist and she's the author of Maybe You Should Talk to Someone. Such a great book. I can't recommend it enough. New York Times bestseller for many, many weeks in a row. Uh, she's also the author of the Dear Therapist column at The Atlantic. And also joining us is Guy Winch, a therapist, but also the author of the ongoing Dear Guy column at TED. And Guy's videos, his TED Talks, have had over 20 million views, including, I love the title of this one, it's so straightforward, How to Fix a Broken Heart. I, I, I probably watched that one myself four or five times. And now I listen to their excellent podcast called Dear Therapists. Thanks so much for joining the show. Well, thanks so much for having us. It's great to be back. Yeah, it is great to meet you and to be on the show. And we're going to talk about your your podcast. Your podcast, uh, I remember when you guys were first starting it, and it's it's produced by Katie Corrick, which is it's like it's like no matter where I turn, Lori, I see like you've, you you're New York Times bestseller. Oh, now Katie Corrick is producing your podcast, and you're going to have a TV show, and 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 then oh, partnering with guy who's got 20 million views on TED. You guys know how to really create powerful content which is such a, a, a skill. How did you meet Katie Couric? Um, Katie Couric was a early fan of the book. I had met her earlier. We were at a conference together and we were um, you know, both presenting there. And she's the nicest person you will ever meet in your entire life. And, um, and so supportive. And, um, and she's been incredibly helpful. And it was her idea, in fact, to do this podcast. It's such a, a smart, well, how, first of all, how did you guys meet? We met at a conference as well. Apparently that's where you meet people. And we started talking and we had well, we started, so much. We started talking because, because Guy was actually helping me write my TED Talk because I <laughs> was panicking because I was about to do my first TED Talk and Guy was a veteran TED Talker. And I uh, I met him there and I was telling him about it and he was so generous and he said, I will sit down with you and look through this with you. And he saved me. And what what advice did he give you uh, that saved you? I, I want to ask all about your, your, your podcast. It's, it's fascinating, but I'm also, hey, I want to give a TED talk that gets 20 million <laughs> views. So uh, what advice did he give you? Well, he gave me great advice because it was one of the most uh, the top 10 most watched of the year. So yeah. <laughs> his advice worked. And basically his advice was calm the F down. Um, <laughs> and so it was very helpful. He's like, you know what? Right now you're really worried about this. By the time you get up on that stage, you will be really comfortable. And he reminded me that, you know, there was a message that I wanted to get out there. And when you're really passionate about the message that you want to get out there, when you're up on that stage, that's what you're thinking about. You're thinking about connecting with the audience. You're thinking about spreading that message. And I think that's what we're trying to do in our podcast too, which is we decided to team up because we said we really want to bring emotional health out into the open. And we want to demystify what therapists do. And so we want to show people, how do we think about everyday problems? What's the behind the scenes of that? And then, you know, in our advice column, so Guy writes the advice column for Ted and I write the advice column for The Atlantic. 
when we give the advice, no one knows what happens afterward. And so what we wanted to do was we wanted to say, hey, people go and they try our suggestions and then they come back and you hear it all on one episode, but they come back within the week and they tell us how it went. And I feel like we can learn so much, not only from what worked, but also from what didn't. Yeah, like in in, in your uh, individual practices, how often do you sometimes give advice and you never find out what, what happened? Is that like a regular occurrence or? Well, not really. I mean, for me, I give advice quite a bit and I find out what happens a week later or if it goes badly in 24 hours from a bad, you know, email saying, help, didn't go well. Um, and usually, by the way, if it doesn't go well, they didn't follow the advice correctly. I'm just pointing that out. But, but <laughs> the, the, <laughs> very modest therapist. But no, I'm just saying that it's like, it's very tricky because it's all about nuance. It's all about communication. And that's, and that's difficult to, to retain necessarily. But that's the challenge that we have in this podcast because we're asking people to um, come back to us within a short amount of time. So the advice we give has to be very actionable and very specific. And it has to be something they can indeed do within a matter of days and that we have to fit to the situation. But it makes it really compelling because we're asking them to take really serious action about something that's probably been plaguing them for a long time and then report back. And that's, I think, what makes it so interesting. And also what Guy was saying about, you know, how sometimes you give advice and then it didn't work. A lot of times someone will come back and they'll say, so I said that thing that you told me to say to my mother, and then they say the thing, and I think to myself, I didn't say anything like that. There was <laughs> exactly. such a distortion, right? So it wasn't that that the advice didn't work in that case. It was that you made up in your head something that was very different from the advice that was given. And why do they do that? It's because they really want to say X, and so you say, no, no, say Y, and then they interpret it in their brain, oh, she said I could say X. Well, really it's because that people come with a very rigid frame of how they see things. And our advice is usually about, you need to step out of that frame and see things differently and act accordingly. But that frame has been with them for a long time. And so it makes total sense in the session, but five minutes afterwards, they start shifting back to their old frame and the advice gets distorted in their head. And I always say to people, when you leave the session, the first thing I want you to do is sit back down in the waiting room and take very copious notes because you're not going to retain them by the time you get out of the elevator. Uh, do I, I take notes during my therapy sessions. Good. I'm for it. Oh, okay, good. What do you think of that, Lori? So I have a different approach during the session. I love the advice of writing it down right after the session. Um, I feel like for me, I'm so focused on making contact, making emotional contact with mm. the person in the room that when people are taking notes, I feel like sometimes that detracts from the relationship that's going on in real time in the room. Well, you guys have already done a bunch of episodes. Uh, you've done six episodes out there, including your introduction episode. And they're all so interesting and so relatable. Uh, do you mind if I ask you some specifics about one or two of them? Sure. Sure. Are you are you asking? Are you going to be asking us advice? I will be asking you for them? advice also. Uh, but, <laughs> but, I'm just joking. I no. I believe me. Every time Lori knows this. Every time I have Lori on, I I use the podcast as a therapy session. So this will be no exception. But I do want to ask about some specific episodes because I mean you have the 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 latest podcast you did was um, this is such a classic situation, but a woman is uh, was dating somebody he breaks up with her and she doesn't know why and she doesn't know how to get um you know some closure around it and that seems like such a classic a, a, a classic situation that, that everyone could relate to and and what's great about your podcast is that all of these situations are 
you realize everybody kind of speaks the same language of whether it's trauma or pain or, or whatever. So you can kind of slip into that. You probably see similar situations that maybe are not exactly the same, but as like Mark Twain supposedly said, history doesn't uh, repeat, it rhymes. And so you see a lot of rhyming situations. Like the someone is broken up with, doesn't know why and doesn't know how to get closure. Like that basic situation probably, I mean, happens to everybody, you know, maybe dozens of times. Yeah. I mean, I think every letter that we choose um, is interesting because we're not just answering for that specific person, but on the podcast, we feel like every person mm -hmm. who listens is going to see a part of themselves in this story, even if they haven't experienced that exact thing, because the emotional undertones are what's universal. It's an interesting thing because our emotional DNA is universal in the sense that it's we experience certain situations emotionally the same across cultures, across ethnicities, across the world. How we react to it, how we express it outwardly, verbally, non-verbally might differ, but our internal experience is really, really, really similar. So as therapists, we can we know we've both worked with plenty of heartbroken people. We know the typical emotions that come up, the typical issues that come up. Indeed, closure is a big thing. Even the research shows that when you don't have closure, it's harder to move on. So getting that sense of closure is actually important. However you get it, I always advocate that if you don't have the answers, make them up, but choose, I mean, something that's reasonable, but choose something that gives you some kind of sense of, of understanding. But, but that is so universal so that we try to choose letters and situations that we can use as an example, but we know will speak too many people because of the universality of the situation and the emotional experience underlying it. One example of that is the episode that we did with um, somebody named Mike, and he came to us because, yeah, it was really, you know, that was a really heavy episode. And he had left his wife and um, children and one, you know, his wife had, while his wife was pregnant, he had fallen in love with his coworker and then told his wife after the baby was born that he was leaving her for this coworker and they also had a toddler. And he was saying, everybody thinks that I'm terrible and am I really that terrible? And was I, you know, was was my sentence here to be in a marriage that, that you know, I was unhappy in for the rest of my life for the sake of my kids? And can I, can't I also be a good father and be happy in a relationship? And and I think what, what was really interesting about that is we've gotten so many letters about infidelity in various incarnations. Um, and we have, several episodes on it, because even though the situation, uh, you know, situations are different, I think there's so much about, you know, the, the questions underneath it. And in, in Mike's case, it was, how do you broaden your perspective? How do you, um, how do you see something that you haven't seen before? And he could not see something so important about the experience of his wife, throughout this. And by the end of the episode, you see this guy who seems very unlikable at the top of the episode become this person who has empathy, who is really struggling to move into a place that he had never been before. And so you can see that in the span of one podcast or, or one sort of, you know, quote unquote therapy session, um, how much movement can actually be made. And I think that that's what's very exciting about doing this in podcast form. Well, this I, so this is a great episode also to focus on. He he, he comes in there and he, like you say, he 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 had. It's like the worst case scenario. Like his wife was pregnant, he had kids. He uh, uh, fell in love with a coworker, had an affair, leaves his wife. Of course, the societal, the stereotypical thing is everyone is going to think he's a scumbag. He's going to think 
in society's eyes that he's a scumbag. So, so do you want to describe like what, what you, what you told him and, and what happened? Well, what we thought was important was that he was having real trouble and taking his wife's perspective, really getting things, his ex-wife from, from her point of view and being able to talk about her experience in a way that showed that he really understood her experience. And that's why he was coming across to people like a quote-unquote scumbag and to himself, because they, he couldn't talk about it in a way that showed that he understood the implications and the consequences of what he did. So our effort was to really take him through an exercise, um, which I think is the fantasy of everyone who's ever been cheated on, that um, something that that the person who cheated on them would be taken through the exercise we took Mike through. I think is truly a fantasy for a lot of people because we took him through an exercise where he really had to inhabit his wife's experience and speak about it in great detail from start to finish. And we were really tough on him in, in the sense of like keeping him there and insisting that he really try and visualize and connect with what her experience must have been like. Because our, our assumption was that if you can really connect to that, if you can really feel that in a way that he hadn't been able to, then A, he would have real compassion and empathy for her, but he would be able to speak about it in a way that demonstrated that to the people around him. So he indeed would not seem like a scumbag because he wasn't. And and I think the other part of it is that so often when we've done something that we feel shame around, um, we often litigate our position. And mm. that's what he was doing. You know, here's, here's why I did what I did. And he wanted to kind of defend himself from all of the accusations as opposed to, even though he knew that he had hurt all of these people. And he couldn't really go into that place of acknowledging to them that he had hurt them because he felt, well, that just gives them more ammunition to call me a scumbag. But no, what it does is it helps them to see the person in a more multifaceted way. You know, and that's 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 really great advice for, for him to move forward in a, internally, like in his head and how he deals with himself. I'm wondering, how does he move forward just in terms of his his actual relationships with all these people, like the friends who thought he was a scumbag or the coworkers, or even later on describing the situation to future coworkers, like some of them really will think he's a scumbag and he'll never be able to fully get over that. He has to kind of detach himself from, from the outcome of, of his story a little bit. One of the things that, that we said to him was it wasn't so much about getting forgiveness from other people, but it was getting him to a place of forgiving himself. And he wasn't going to be able to do that until he saw himself with more honesty. And that means seeing both sides of it, seeing that, yes, he did something that was incredibly painful and hurtful and he handled it abysmally. Um, and at the same time that there's more to him than that. And he needed to bring that other side out in himself. And you can see in the episode that he actually followed our advice and he did write the letter that we had asked him to write. And, um, and had that conversation with his, uh, with his, who had the person who had been the best man at his wedding, who was now no longer wanting to be friends with him, and 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 how that really shifted something where he was able to take responsibility. So often people are not willing to take responsibility for what they did because, again, of that shame. I, I also think the other part. I mean, you asked about how he would be received by people or how he'd be perceived by people. And I think there's a big difference when you come and say, yes, I left my wife for another woman because I didn't want to be trapped in an unhappy marriage forever just for the sake of, of parenting my kids together. There's a difference between whether you say that and whether you say, I did something that caused so much pain 
to my ex-wife and it was so unfortunate that, that that's what happened um, and I know how much she suffered and might still be suffering but for me I just felt that I wanted a chance of true happiness I mean those two renditions sound different and they make you seem differently when you can as part of what you're describing take on and, and acknowledge and take responsibility but also use the descriptions and use the words that will truly indicate that you get the implications of what you did. It just comes across very differently when somebody sounds like, I understand what I did, here's why I did it, but I do understand what I did. You know, it, it, you mentioned in, in, actually in the, in the most recent episode, you mentioned how a lot of times in a relationship, there's that first phase where everyone's like super excited and then it kind of shifts to a more, I don't know, call it like a more mature phase where you learn to get along at things other than just the, the physical and, and, and so on. For, for a guy like Mike, he had this infidelity with his coworker and it's very exciting and he left his, his wife. Um, like how, do, how does he know in that situation that he's, he's gonna, the same thing's not gonna just happen to him again? Which is, might be what he's afraid of too. If, if he is a quote unquote scumbag, it, the same thing might happen to him again. Well, what, what Mike said, and I think it's, an, it's a, something that actually happens to a lot of people, is that he got together with his wife when he was very, very young. And he thought, I guess this is what love is. I guess this is as good as it gets. And then when he really fell for someone later on, and he felt that there was such a difference between the incredible love he felt for this new person versus the more tepid love perhaps he felt for his wife, he just felt, wow, so this is what love is. And he had that stark difference. This is not somebody who got together with his wife in his 30s or after dating a lot of people. It happened quite young. And that's something that we hear as therapists from a lot of people. Like, I just didn't know that it could be that different. Now, underlying that is the issue of, yes, relationships, though, are a lot of work. So that infatuation phase, that heady opioid, uh, you know, related stuff that happens in our brain, passes at some point and then you're left with substance and then you're left with hard work and then you're left with communication and all the necessary things that would make a relationship long-term or substantive and successful. There's no way around getting to the work part. But when you start off from a platform that's that excited, you often get a lot of momentum. And and also, yeah, that's true. I think the momentum is really important to have that launching pad. But also one of the things we talked to Mike about on the podcast was that in his relationship with his now ex-wife, when they were married, they didn't communicate at all. You know, they were both very avoidant. And so we really wanted to talk to him about when you're unhappy about something, how do you bring that up with your partner? How do you talk about that as opposed to just keeping it inside? And so how is he going to learn to communicate differently with this new partner so that he doesn't have a repeat of what happened in his marriage? Right, because all his adult life. He's been with this woman that he has not been able, he doesn't know, have an adult pattern of communicating with someone he's intimate with. Right. So how does he learn that? Like, that's a hard muscle to exercise when you're in your 30s. Well, actually, he, I mean, what was interesting about Mike is that he, he went to therapy, he, before obviously the podcast, and he really started this, this inquiry into himself and trying to learn. And he's the one that actually brought up the term of, I'm not good at perspective taking, which we would have said to him had he not said it, but he actually knew that. So that therapist had, had been able to uh, reflect that to him and he had been able to take that on. So he was actually invested in working on himself. He was invested in trying to figure some of the, these things out. He was very game, uh, as difficult as it was for him. He did 
cooperate with us in doing something that was emotionally extraordinarily difficult for him. He really had a hard time with it, but he did it and he made every effort. And so this was somebody whose heart was in the right place, even though his actions were not. He was truly somebody who wanted to work and improve uh, in this regard of communicating and making sure his new relationship actually was in a different space than the old one. Well, what if when you spoke to him, you realized, oh, his heart is not in the right place. <laughs> like, does that does that happen? Like, we're sort of lucky his heart was in the right place, but maybe it's 50-50. I don't know. I think that at our core, our hearts are always in the right place. And sometimes we get tripped up by all kinds of stuff that we don't even realize is going on. And so we want to, like, help people to clear out the mess, clear out the muck, clear out all the stuff that is, you know, keeping them stuck. Let them shine a light on their blind spots. Um, because usually the person that is preventing us from true happiness in relationships and in life more generally is ourselves. And we don't realize how much we get in our own way. So what we're really trying to do, what we do as therapists, what we do in our advice columns, what we do on the podcast is we really try to help people see, hey, here's this thing that you don't realize that you are doing. Mm. And most people are really, they feel a lot of relief, you know, because all of a sudden it's like, oh, wait a minute, there is a solution here. There is another way of doing things. But you are right in that we, we do have an advantage because when somebody comes to therapy or when somebody writes a letter, by doing so, they are saying, I want help. I want to be able to change something. I want to be able to do something. If we had plucked Mike off the street uh, and is not somebody who had been to therapy or approached anyone, he might indeed have been someone who's like, mm -mm -mm, I actually am a scumbag and I'm good with it. Um, but when somebody does goes to the trouble of writing a letter and following up and coming on the podcast or even attending therapy, um, it means that there is a desire inside to do something. So we're, we're, we're actually working with, with clay that's a little bit moldable here. So, so, you know, uh, this is related to the um, most recent podcast too. And, and, and Guy, you said earlier that there's evidence that people need closure in relationships. And I, I wonder, you know, A, a lot of times people don't get closure in relationships. Like somebody leaves and, and that's it, done. And it's not just, you know, romantic relationships. It could be friendships. It could be work relationships. It's whatever. Um, how do you get closure when there's there's nothing on the other side? There's just a wall on the other side. Well, really, I mean, what I advocate is that if you don't have information, if there's a lack of information and you actually have to fill in the blanks, then fill them in with something that is beneficial to you. In other words, don't fill them in, well, I guess I must be unlovable or I guess I must be inadequate in some kind of way. Because if you're just making it up, make up something that actually benefits you more. And the most common reason things don't work out um, is because there's a mismatch in terms of the chemistry, in terms of the timing, something about that match wasn't right. And if you don't know what specifically it was, it doesn't really really matter that much. You can just go with, we weren't, I wasn't the best match for that person. And I might never know quite why, it just clearly that was the case. And whatever you come to, if you can settle on that and go, and that will be the end of my query, because I'm not going to spend the next five years trying to do some kinds of forensic analysis to understand, oh, you know what it was, it was A, B, C, and D, because our, our behavior is multi-determined. It's not really that there's one thing per se, it's just this feeling of it doesn't add up to enough. And I think, you know, in the first episode called Sharina's Heartbreak, where she has exactly that situation where the guy breaks up with her and she doesn't understand why, um, what she comes to realize is that she didn't actually want to be with him. 
<laughs> and so I think that we realize that later. We, we're so stung by the breakup that sometimes it takes us a little, you know, it takes us a beat to realize, wait a minute, actually, I, I, I was more interested in finding a way to get him to love me. This is in her situation. I was more interested in, in getting him to love me than I was in whether I was stepping back to say, do I love him? Do I want to be with him? Everything she told us in that episode was about, well, he didn't this or he didn't that or he didn't, we didn't have these common interests. And, and she was like, and I would just take on his interests and I would do all these things. Like she was trying to make them compatible as opposed to saying, wait a minute, we're not compatible. Why am I trying so hard to be with this person that I actually don't have a lot in common with? Right. So, so, and this is, you know, obviously the difference between podcast and therapy because why did she have this issue? What there's a, as you even allude to in a lot of these episodes, there's always a bigger issue, right? Which is why is she so easily going into his gravitational pull as opposed to him trying to be nice to her? Well, we actually brought it back to her family. We did get a little bit of family history and you can see from her family that this was a feeling that she had had for a very long time. There was a historical component to how she felt and then there was a current component, which was the relationship. And there was, you know, it was it was no coincidence that, um, <laughs> that the two met. And, um, you know, I think often, you know, there's that saying, we marry our unfinished business. I think we date mm -hmm. our unfinished business too. And in this case, that's what Sharina was doing. And, and you know, it, it's interesting because you, I used to think of, and I, Lori, I think we had this conversation like two or three times ago that you were on, but I always used to think of therapy as going to a statistician. So this person has, I'm going to someone who has been, who has seen a thousand of every type of situation and has, you know, seen lots of inputs into that situation and lots of outputs. And so, and statistically knows what works best. So I'm just going to say I'm in this situation, ABC, and she's seen that a thousand times and knows the D that statistically works out to be the best. And so I used to think of therapy as, as that, which is kind of goes along the lines of like an advice column or, 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 or a podcast like this, where you don't see the whole history really. I mean, you get as much as you can, but you know, you're not in therapy with the, with them for a year, with the patient for years, you're seeing just this one input, this one situation that's fairly common, but you know, unique to them also. And you have to come up with an output. So to some extent, it reminds me of the, my statistician analogy. Well, I, but I actually, I disagree with that a bit because me too. Good. Tell me. In a podcast, well, yes, but, uh, you know, in a podcast, obviously, we have a very limited amount of time, so we have to use certain algorithms or heuristics, as you're kind of implying. But in therapy, the tool we use, and in the podcast as well, to be honest, is we use, it is our emotional feelings and responses. It is our understanding of emotions and, and, and how they work and what tends to go with what and why certain things tend to happen um, that really guide us in terms of what the person uh, is missing or what they're not seeing or where they need to go. So in fact, we are not operating from the neck uh, and above. We are operating very much in a visceral way in combination with the information and the statistics, quote unquote, that we have. It's, it's truly the combination of the two that make both therapy and I think this podcast um, 
compelling in that sense because if it were just the statistics it just wouldn't be touching it wouldn't be evocative and both therapy and some of the you know examples we have on this podcast are quite evocative and and i think too if it were just an algorithm there wouldn't be that element of surprise and one of the things that i think is so interesting about the work that Guy and I do as therapists, and then also you see it on the podcast, is that element of surprise that you you may have seen X number of people who have experienced something like this, but every person is unique. And there's going to be something that you didn't expect, something that comes out of left field that completely changes the way you're looking at that person and their situation. And I think that all of our lives are like that. Our lives are really unique. And it's important to honor the uniqueness of each person's experience. And, you know, I, I like how you guys are producing the, the podcast. Like it's, a, it's, it, it's not, an, obviously it's not an interview format like we're doing here. It's, you know, you have, you're sorting through, I don't know how many letters you get a week, but you're sorting through all these letters. You pick one, you talk to them, you get more information, you talk, amongst each other and, and you you edit some of that and then you have them back to describe what happened like it's a it's it's work it's like you're not just sitting down talking to someone for a half hour or an hour you have to kind of keep in touch and call them back and and so on so it's a nicely produced podcast is what i'm saying <laughs> well thanks we, we wanted to kind of seem like an experience of therapy right where so we're not doing therapy per se but what we're doing is we're giving people a sense of how do therapists think about these problems that we all experience? Um, what is different about how a therapist thinks about it versus how friends discussing it would talk about it? So you hear Guy and I having our own discussion. So the letter is read. Then Guy and I, before the, the person comes on, we talk about it as two therapists, almost like a consultation with each other. And we kind of say, oh, here's what stuck out to me. Here's what I'm thinking. Here's some of the things we want to think about as we talk to this person. So it's, it's kind of the behind the scenes. You're like a fly on the wall there. And then the person comes on and I think there's something that you don't get in our columns as much, which is, you know, hearing someone's voice, hearing the back and forth, um, hearing the way that we move people from where they started at the beginning of the podcast to a completely different place by the end of the podcast, and then giving them that actionable advice and seeing what happens. We really hope that people are moved from one place to another through the experience of coming on the show. And what I think is, for me, has been an incredible um, pleasure in working with Lori is that when we are interviewing the person, we are not taking any breaks. We talked for a few minutes before they came on, and then we are doing the session, quote unquote, and then that's it. Then we give the advice and off they go, and then they report back. But in that session, we have to be or we don't have to be, but it would be really good if we were coordinated in the direction that we were going, in the things that we were trying to get them to see, in the actual work that we're doing, and we are not pausing to discuss it. And so what's been so, I think, great for me, and I think so interesting for people to see is that, you know, we sound like we're really tag teaming, going back and forth, and like we've scripted this out and planned it all out and we actually haven't planned any bit of it this is just our spontaneous um experiences and professional ideas coming together in this amalgam and 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 really sounding i think unified in terms of how we see things and that's also very comforting for people so they understand we're not as therapists we just don't really nearly kind of make stuff up there, there there's real method to the madness and you can see it i think in the coordination that we have between us in the interviews we do 
Yes, it's totally true. Airbnb has changed my life. If anything, they have made my life so much better. Like I used to live in Airbnbs. I, I lived in over 100 or 200 different Airbnbs over a three-year period, and I loved it. I, loved, I became a really good guest of Airbnbs, and I got to know lots of hosts. So when I initially owned a house, I, of course, the first thing I thought was I'm going to turn my house into an Airbnb because I travel a lot. So why leave my house unused when I can make a side income by letting others Airbnb my house or come to stay in my house as guests and having my own Airbnb or, or being a host for Airbnb has allowed me to do just that. And I've met other hosts. I've actually spoken at Airbnb's host conference. I think it was in 2017. I met so many just nice hosts. It's a great community. And I love, you know, turning my own home into an Airbnb. Like I'm traveling to Austin next month. My home's going to be an Airbnb while I'm away. And I'll stay in an Airbnb. I'd rather stay in like a three-story house Airbnb than in one tiny hotel room in, in the middle of Austin during South by Southwest. So listen, while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Many people host on Airbnb, but there are people who are just letting their house sit empty, who've never thought about it or didn't realize their space could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and is a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, then you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I remember last year I was asked to go speak at the Norway Business Summit, and I was so excited because side by side with the Business Summit was the Norway Chess Summit, where I would get to see in person Magnus Carlsen, the best chess player ever, playing chess. But it was four plane rides like to get to the city that ultimately I would go to. So I really did not want to fly for 14 hours, and they were willing to pay for everything for me. So... I, I, at first class. So I didn't want to fly for 14 hours and not be first class. So I had to hurry up and get on the phone immediately to get those first class tickets to a chess tournament in Norway. And listen, this is just like when, you know, you have to know when you want the best of anything, you have to act quickly or someone else will get it instead. And I did not want those seats to fill up. So it's like if you're hiring for your business, you want to find the most talented people for your open roles before the competition scoops them up. I just was talking to a friend this morning where he was trying to decide between some programmers and he waited a little too long and both the programmers he was interviewing took other jobs, like great jobs. So, you know, what's the best way then to hire the best as quickly as possible? ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter finds qualified candidates fast. And right now, you could try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Just try it and see. You'll, you'll find out. So ZipRecruiter's powerful matching technology takes center stage to identify the top talent for your roles. 
immediately after you post your job, ZipRecruiter's smart technology starts showing you qualified people for it. And I know this because one time I signed up as an employee, potential employee on ZipRecruiter, and I got nonstop, really, I was, even though obviously I wasn't looking for a job, I love what I do, but I just wanted to see what would happen because they were a, a, a sponsor of my podcast. And the most interesting jobs would pop up in my emails like, hey, you're qualified for this or that. And so it's interesting to see. So just just go there and try it. Try ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Amp up your hiring performance. Now, this is more for if you're hiring, but amp up your hiring performance with ZipRecruiter and find the best fast. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address right now to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. When your space has the long-lasting, noticeable scent of Airwick Vibrant Essential Mist, you'll want to invite everyone over. From book club to reality TV watch parties, even the in-laws. It smells amazing. Airwick Vibrant Essential Mist is infused with two times more essential oil versus regular Airwick Essential Mist for our most authentic, nature-inspired fragrance experience. Airwick Vibrant Essential Mist is perfectly portable and effortlessly easy. The way fragrance should be. Now that's a breath of fresh Airwick. You know, I, I I think it's so interesting, the behind the scenes quality, because I don't say this is a goal of therapy, but one of the things that therapy often does is it provides a different perspective that your fellow traveler, as you call your, your guests on your shows, get to see some new insight into the situation that they have never thought of before. And it's kind of like shining a light in some dusty corner of their of their head so that they could see it more clearly. And I think that's interesting to see how you guys sort of are thinking about it. So you're trying to figure out your, how you're going to approach the situation and then how it actually happens in the, in the episode. We had a couple on, um, a couple of episodes ago and they had been to two couples therapists before wow. they came to us. And, <laughs> and, um, you know, it was, it was really great to be able to talk to them and help them through this dilemma that had been keeping them stuck for quite a while, this decision that they had to make in their marriage. Um, and so, you know, I think it's a different experience than sitting in a therapy room, but I also think that there's, there's, we do bring ourselves as therapists into this in ways that um, we hope are really helpful for people. Well, and that particular episode was related, they were trying to make a decision kind of through this pandemic and economic lockdown and, and other issues that were going on in their life. And uh, how do you see the, the, you know, everything that's happened these past five months kind of changing therapy like is everybody everybody now is just going through a rough time like everybody on the seven billion people are depressed right now in different shades perhaps i'm just guessing but you know what you know how you and also you guys are dealing with coronavirus and and all of its ramifications for for your lives so how do you what are you seeing in terms of how people are reacting what do you think is going to happen as this is finished in terms of people's, this is almost like everybody's going to go through PTSD afterwards. Like what's going to happen to the global psyche after this? Well, I think one of the great things, if I can use the word great in conjunction within this conversation is that uh, let's call it a silver lining is that 
a lot of people are finally saying, wait a minute, my emotional life is important, that mm -hmm. it is it is crucial, that, you know, when we go through the busyness of our day-to-day, -day, sometimes we think that, like, it's an accessory or it's optional. You know, I don't really have to worry about this sadness, this anxiety, this insomnia, these relational difficulties so much because I have all these other distractions. And now people are saying, wait a minute, the, the quality of my emotional health affects everything. And because all of us therapists are doing this on Zoom right now, it's so much more accessible to people. They don't have to go through like traffic and parking and waiting rooms and all of the things. And, and so many people, in fact, are, are kind of doing therapy on their toilet seats because it's the only place in their, you know, in their homes where, where they can find a place that's away from their roommates or their families that's private. Um, but people are doing it. And I think that people are saying, wait a minute, as we emerge from this, this isn't something that I want to just, um, you know, go back to the old way about that I actually want to continue to focus on my emotional health because it affects not just me, but my friends, my family, everyone around me, society at large, we all need to be healthy emotionally. And what I found is that over these months, I've been contacted by so many companies um, who I would not have expected uh, to be contacted by, who are like, we're concerned about the emotional health of our employees. Now, my feeling about that, to be honest with you, is that you should always be concerned about the emotional health of your employees. But now they're really concerned about the emotional health of their employees. And so they're asking for talks, they're asking for guidance or for those kinds of things. And that's what Laurie was saying, that there is a, a openness now and an understanding now that, hey, you know, our emotional health kind of does make a difference because we're all suffering, as you said. And we are all stressed, certainly, and anxious and suffering to some degree. But it's opened people's eyes to the fact that there's something we need to do about that. We need to get more sophisticated. We need to have a better understanding. We need to acquire certain tools, which we ordinarily would be like, eh, I can do without. Well, we can't do without. And so, so now here we are in month six of this you know, economic lockdown and the, and the fears around the, the virus and so on. And you know, you're also seeing like kind of unrest in the streets, uh, you know, greater than I've seen in, in my lifetime. And what do you think, I mean, what direction do you see this going? Like, are, are people just starting to crack? Do you think there's going to be more divorces after this? Are people going to be able to come back from this? And, and I agree that people are thinking more about not only their emotional life, but that, you know, life is short. You got to make the most of the time you have with people. But you also see people just going completely insane on the other side. Well, you know, one of the things I'm actually hopeful about, I wanted to actually address the social justice movement, because what, one of the things I'm actually hopeful about is that we know when we're talking about, for example, family systems, that a family is unlikely to change unless they're in crisis. And that's true of larger systems as well. Mm -hmm. And so I think my hope, for example, for the Black Lives Matter movement and, and, and the Me Too movement and other things like that, is that in a time of crisis, in a time of transition and change, it's actually a little bit easier for people to accept that something's going to be different. And so I'm actually hoping that this traction that we're seeing, as you said, more than we've seen in our lifetimes, that will it, it will continue, that it will go on, and as long as necessary until actual change happens, because what's necessary, obviously, is systemic change. That's not something that's a whitewashed job that you can just do, you know, in a couple of moves. It has to be deep, it has to be thought through, and it has to be maintained. And it's in this time of crisis that you might actually see societal change that will actually take root and, and work. And that's my very, very optimistic but hopeful um, thought about the, the clash of these two uh, things happening at the same time. And I, and I also want to say that I think one of the things that 
this whole pandemic has done is um, there's been sort of a great leveling because I think that no matter who you are, um, we're all responding to the same trauma right now. And I think that when uh, we start to look at Black Lives Matter, we start to say, wait a minute, we are all connected. We are all similar. I think that people who maybe had been closed-minded before in ways that were very, um, you know, like you wouldn't think you would see in 2020, but you do, um, I think all of a sudden are saying, wait a minute, I want to rethink this. Wait a minute, this, this, this really, this is really important. Wait a minute, I need to get involved in this. Wait a minute, this actually does affect me. And I think that Black Lives Matter affects every single one of us, that we all have a role. And if we're not doing something, if we aren't participating in this, if we aren't trying to affect change, then, um, you know, we're not seeing how it relates to, to all of us in our connections to one another. And I think that because of the pandemic, people were more open to seeing that. I think that's right. And I think not only more open to seeing that in this, in this societal way that everybody should should move towards social change, but even in a personal way, I sort of view this almost as like, oh, when someone goes from high school to college across the country, they could, you know, there's a, the cliche that they could be whoever they want. Like this is the time to to change. And I sort of see that happening a little bit in this lockdown and coronavirus. Like you could sort of come out of this, you know, deciding you wanna, oh, I don't want to go back to that old job or I don't wanna go back to these old patterns or relationships or whatever. and. It's a fresh an opportunity for a fresh start if they view it that way. Well, when so much is taken away from you, it's an opportunity actually to look and see and to assess what matters. Because when, when you have so little of what you are used to in your life, then you can actually look and, and, and ask yourself, what really matters and what am I missing and what am I not and what am I really wishing uh, that was back and, and, and what am I not? There's a real self-assessment that happens in these kinds of times. And I think that's happening individually and culturally and societally. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I agree with Guy that we're really getting our priorities straight. I think that when you're in this time right now, so many people have said, wait a minute, that thing that I can't do because of the pandemic, I never wanted to do. I don't want to go back to that, right? Or there are all these things that now I'm seeing I didn't prioritize that are really important to me. And those might be relationships with people. It might be something professionally. It might be something creatively. Whatever it is, all of a sudden people are saying, I'm going to reconfigure things now because I've taken a step back and I can see what's important. And so for certain people, that's looking at, oh, you know, that that hour and a half commute to my job every day, I, I don't want to go back to that. Um, you know, that friend who really kind of drains me, who I'm not really seeing much of because of the pandemic, I don't need to spend, you know, my emotional real estate doesn't need to go over there. And where it does need to go is to the people who, and, and to the people and to the things that are nurturing, that are nourishing. And that's where I think people are focusing right now. Yeah, I, I sort of, I wonder what you think about this. I, I sort of view this time also as like a little bit of an accelerator. So if you were going to end up quitting your job in five years because you hated it. Now you'll quit it, you know, in a month. <laughs> or if you were going to not be friends with this person 10 years from now, chances are you probably won't be friends with them coming out of this or as much friends with them coming out of this pandemic. Do you see this acceleration? It, it reminds me of, um, and maybe you should talk to someone in my book where there's this young woman who is um, diagnosed with cancer. And she says to me at one point, why do, why do people need a terminal diagnosis to finally act on all of the things that they wanted to act on? Why do people need a terminal diagnosis to to live their dreams, to do what they want to do in life, right? 
And, and I think the same thing with the pandemic. You know, why do we need a crisis to do that? And I think Guy explained why. Um, but now's the opportunity. You're right, that I think all of a sudden, when we have this wake-up call, people realize that mortality is a real thing that life has a 100% mortality rate, and that's not just for other people. And right now, I think a lot of people are saying, I, I'm really looking at the fact that I have a limited time here on the planet, that life can be really precious. And I need to make these choices now and not kick the can down the road so that, you know, 10 years from now, I'm in the same place. And I think what's doing that in this pandemic is not the number of months that we've already had, but the unclear number of months that are before us. In other words, it's it's not clear when we're returning to life as we mostly kind of knew it, won't be exact, but um, that's it. You know, we don't quite see that yet. We're not as if we're looking around the globe and saying, oh, this is a country that's actually figured it out. Let's just do that because everyone's struggling all around the, all around the globe. And so it's that uncertainty into the future that really makes you go like, well, it's not just that my time is limited, but like, I'm not sure when my full freedoms will be restored here. So then let me really think about where I want to invest my efforts once they are. So, so which, which leads to the fact that right now we're all, all dealing with this uncertainty because you're, you're right. It's not like there's a scheduled time, like at this, at 3 PM on September 12th, uh, pandemic is over and life is back to normal. There's, there's a huge amount of uncertainty, both in terms of timing and what will this new normal or whatever you want to call it, what will it look like? What jobs will exist? How will the world be a year from now, even after there's no pandemic because the economy has shifted in so many ways? Like, how do you tell people how to deal with this uncertainty? Because everybody's dealing with it right now. And that, that must be, you're encountering that in, in every situation. Well, you know, I think humans don't do well with uncertainty and humans will fight it tooth and nail, right? So people just don't want uncertainty. They want to feel like they have control over every aspect of their lives. But the reality is that we don't. And I think that there's something liberating about acknowledging that there is uncertainty and that uncertainty presents an opportunity for change. And I think that some people deal with uncertainty by um, it's it's called a tolerance for ambiguity in psychology. We call that a tolerance for ambiguity. You have to, uh, those who can actually tolerate the idea of, oh yes, there, there are certain things that are going to be one way or the other and I can deal with the fact that there's not a clear answer, uh, are more likely to be okay. And those people who don't have a good tolerance for ambiguity are going to struggle. And what they might do, and I see this around, is they might start to uh, manufacture or to make up or to just decide, okay, the reality is going to be this way because I can't deal with not knowing what it's going to be. So I'm just going to assert it or assume it or believe it one way or the other. And that's, you see a lot of problems happening because of that approach. Yeah. So how do you, so, so kind of um, looking at both your answers to that, when you're feeling like, let's say inundated with this uncertainty or overwhelmed with it, do you try to notice, oh, this is that uncertain feeling again. It's it's natural. I should try to think of things that I'm gonna change or prioritize or like what's how could you exercise that 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 tolerance? I think it's really important to stay in the present because what you know is what's happening right now. And so sometimes we are so far ahead in our minds. We're we're future tripping, we're catastrophizing, we're making up a story about something that hasn't happened and may never happen that we miss out on what's actually happening right now in the present. And so for a lot of people, they keep saying, oh, it's a big blur, it's a big blur, because they're not paying attention. 
And if there's going to be a wake-up call here at all, it's about pay attention. You get one life. It's happening now. It's, we don't know what's going to happen in the future. What happened in the past happened in the past. But what we do know, what is certain, is what's happening right now. And so if you want that certainty, pay attention to where you are right now. And also I think there's an opportunity for people to practice sitting with a difficult emotion and learning how to tolerate it more. Because A, it's a feature of life, and B, that would be a useful thing because we, we run away from negative feelings so dramatically that we convince ourselves that we couldn't possibly tolerate that. But yes, we could. And if you just sit with the fact or and label it, name it, say, you know what, making me really uncomfortable right now is this general uncertainty I have about my life, about the world, if you can name that and go, so let me just sit with that for a few minutes and, and think it through and get used to that discomfort, and then I can move on from it for right now, but let me just sit with that because that's a reality for me right now, and, I, and if I can learn to accept it and to tolerate it a little bit more, I will be a little less frightened from it, and I won't have to do things that are unwise to escape something that's truly not necessary or possible to escape. Guy's right because we, you know, we do that with our kids too, right? We try to sort of like talk them out of their, the feelings that they have that make us uncomfortable. We're uncomfortable with the fact that they are having uncomfortable feelings. So your kid will say, you know, I'm really sad about this. And we say like, hey, let's go have some ice cream uh, <laughs> instead of, instead of tell me about that right? Um, or, you know, I'm really sad about the fact that I can't see my friends. Well, you'll see them soon. No, that, that completely invalidates what they're feeling. And so what kids learn from that, in, that interaction is, oh, I, I can't sit with my uncomfortable feelings, that it's not okay to sit with them, that I, what I should do when I have an uncomfortable feeling is immediately get rid of it, right? And so instead of trying to talk your kids out of their feelings, like when kids say to you, I'm scared about this, and we say, oh, don't be scared. There's nothing to worry about. Well, no, they're actually worried. So can we just say three words to them, which you can do with your partner, you can do with your friends, you can do you know, with anybody in your life, is when somebody is telling you something and you feel like I have to fix their situation, I have to make them less uncomfortable. No, you can say to them, just tell me more. What people really want is to be heard. They want to be understood. I see you, I hear you, I understand you. That alone provides so much relief, so much more relief than this idea of let's take away that feeling. So what Guy was saying was if you can sit in the uncertainty and you can even talk to somebody about it, hey, this is what I'm feeling right now. They're not going to take away the uncertainty, but you will have in its place, you will have some connection. And that is what I think at the end of the day we really want. We want to be seen, we want to be understood, we want to be heard. Yeah, no, it's, uh, as, as someone who has a bunch of kids, that's uh, often I do try to protect them from any uncomfortable feelings and fall into that trap. And, you know, that's not always, as you point out, that's, 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 that's usually not the best method. It's usually better to let them express it. You know, I have, I have a question which is related to this, but also related to, uh, I'm bringing back the, the closure issue that has come up in a couple of episodes you know, oftentimes we deal with people and you, you see this on, on, on a couple of the episodes, you deal with people who are irrational for whatever reason, and you're not going to get, you know, and I kind of asked this earlier, but you're not going to get any, any closure and you might not be able to fill in the answers in a way that's favorable to you. Is that another time when you have to just kind of deal, like, let's say a boss fires you and they don't give you any reason you thought everything was going along great or let's say a friend 
just disappears and there's no reason you can't figure it out or let's say any any number of things where you feel like betrayed or hurt in some way and you're just never going to get that closure and you're 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 almost like obsessively like i want to get that closure like the the, the woman in the the first episode who wanted to get that closure yes there were bigger issues but i don't know sometimes like when i go through this i say to myself you're, you're never going to get the answer of why like if you ask why you're never going to get the answer but i i think that um you know you can start to see certain patterns and sometimes it's hard to see on your own and you know like i i talked a lot about the difference between idiot compassion and wise compassion so our friends give us idiot compassion they'll be like yeah that was a terrible person that person was terrible to dump you or whatever um you know but but even though they can see that you maybe have been in that situation many times before it's kind of like if a fight breaks out in every bar you're going to maybe it's you and our friends don't say that to us. That part is me, yes. Right? Okay. Um, and so and so the thing is that, you know, what a therapist will do and what we hope we're doing for people on the podcast is we're helping them to see something. We're offering wise compassion where we're helping them to see something about their role in the situation that maybe they hadn't seen before. And that doesn't mean that there aren't difficult people out there. I remember when I was training, one of my clinical supervisors said, before diagnosing someone with depression, make sure they aren't surrounded by assholes right? And so, you know, of course there are difficult people out there, but what is your role in that? And what are you doing either with that person? Or if you, if you want to be with that person or there's, there's more to the story, then, you know, how are you exacerbating this or how are you bringing out the parts of that person that create all of this tension? So I think it's really important to examine our own role in something so that when we move on to something new, that we do things different. And maybe our own role is simply, I'm not going to pick people who are, who, are, who are going to make me feel anxious all the time, or I'm not going to pick people that I have nothing in common with. I, I want to add to that, that I think that my philosophy, and this is something I, I, I talk about in my books, and I, and I talk about a lot with my patients, is that the trick here is to do some kind of analysis, is to do some kind of self-reflection, is to do the due diligence you need to do so that you can get the takeaways that you need, but to do it on a time-limited basis so that you don't get stuck there. The risk is when you don't have closure or when you're trying to figure something out ad nauseum is to really like drift into rumination. And rumination by definition is an entirely unproductive uh, process by which you're just replaying the same thing over and over and rethinking the same thing over and over. And you've had that thought 20 times and you've discussed it with people a hundred times and yet you're still going back. And I, and, and I hear this from, you know, patients like they're like, but I looked at the text messages again and I still don't understand. And I'm like, I'm bored by that already. And I've only heard it five times and not in your head for goodness sakes. So, so it's important that we give ourselves a limitation. I had this line in one of my books that when, that what I do with a tissue box is that when someone one is really upset about a failure, then I will hand them a tissue box and, and, and give them some time to express how demoralized they are, how upset they are, or disappointed, how hurt. But then even within the confines of the session, I'll say, now give me the tissue box back because now we have to pivot to understanding, to learning from it. And often they'll give me the tissue box back by throwing it at me. Um, but that's that's fine. Uh, I'm sitting far away. Um, but but the you know the idea is that it's not it's a good idea to dip in to understand, but not stay there. You then have to step out and move on and move to the more productive and move to the more problem solving and move to the thing that actually moves you forward rather than staying stuck in something for too long because that's really bad for us when we get stuck there.
yeah, but uh, what if, what if you just can't? What if you're not good at that? Like that seems like a muscle also to exercise. Well, no, there's very specific techniques that you can use in order to step out of rumination. My my uh, last TED talk my, my is about rumination and, and what you need to do uh, in order to um, get out of it when you get stuck in it. So there are certain mental exercises, there are certain approaches you can take that will help you step out of rumination because rumination can be, you know, obsessive thinking, stewing, it can be very addictive and it can be very compelling and it can really get stuck in a loop. But if we recognize that, then there are certain actions we can take. And it's, and it's really, um, th this is where emotional health comes in. You have to counter negative and, and, and problematic impulses we sometimes have by forcefully introducing the positive. And this is one of those examples. Yeah, and we have an upcoming episode, in fact, where we give someone who is obsessively ruminating on an ex, um, we give her a specific exercise to do. And I, I don't want to give it away here because the episode hasn't aired yet, but um, but I think it'll be useful for people who ruminate about anything, not just about a romantic relationship. And and what Guy was saying about our emotional health, you know, we have, we talk so much about our physical immune systems, but we also have a psychological immune system. And what really breaks down and weakens your psychological immune system is rumination, mm. that it actually makes you sick. It makes you psychologically sick, Right. And so what we need to do is we need to bolster our psychological immune system. So there's the learning from the experience, but the rumination is like, you know, it's it's all the things that you would do to your physical immune system that would like, you know, make it really, really weak. And if we do that to our psychological immune systems, then we're not in a position to move forward. And what Guy's talking about is how do we help people to move forward? Yeah, I, I there's that saying which I'm gonna misphrase, but uh, you know, anger is like pouring poison for someone else, but then you drink it, but then you're drinking it. So I forget the exact words. But um, you guys enjoying doing uh, the podcast together? Like, is it has it been a fun experience? Yeah, no, it's really great. You know, one of the things that that we have is, as therapists is it's usually just us alone in a room with somebody else. And so it's been really great to be able to work with Guy and, um, you know, kind of try to do what we do in the therapy room, but together. And I, I think when you have the two perspectives, when you have each of us, and sometimes he'll go in with somebody, you'll hear it on the podcast, where he'll go in a certain way and um, and then, you know, I'll take it somewhere or I go in a certain way and the person didn't quite respond. And so then Guy takes it over and you can see how we work together. It's kind of like I was a competitive chess player when I was younger and you had to you think were? several. I was. Wait, what was <laughs> your rating? This is my, well, I, I didn't have a rating. I mean, like I okay. competed in, in chess tournaments, um, but I wasn't good enough to, you know, be at that level. Um, but it was, it was, there was this idea of you're always thinking several moves ahead. And if somebody makes a move, you know, this move, then you have to readjust and you have to change your strategy. And I think that when you have the two of us there, it works very seamlessly. You see that, you know, he'll say something or I'll say something. And you can see that we get to the place that we want to get to because we have the other person there. I think it's really effective. What I really enjoy, there's something in psychology called a you know, consultation model. And that is, and I, and I do get a lot of those in my practice of people who want to come for a one-off. 
And so they're there for one session. And if they're there for one session, you have to go in with your guns blazing because there's no nuance there. It's like blunt and difficult. You're practically hitting them over the head with it. And that's what this podcast is. We do not have time to pussyfoot around. We do not have time to delicately lead the horse to water. We have to shove and push and get that horse to water and get them to drink and then get them to tell us how it was, you know, a few days later. And to feel good about the experience. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and right. to enjoy it. And But there's something very exciting about that, really, as therapists, that you get to be so structured and so clear that we need an outcome right now. Because there's no therapy session, really, in which I need an outcome right now, but Laurie and I do. And we're, we're both um, working together to achieve it. And, and it's very, you don't get to do that as a therapist, work in partnership with someone on this mutual goal. And so there's something very exciting for for me and I think for Laurie and I think for the listeners to hear us work in tandem to get something done now in a very limited amount of time. Well, I, I when I'm listening, I A, I love the insights because, you know, again, all of these situations that you're dealing with are very relatable. And so when they're getting insights, I feel like I'm getting insights, like I'm seeing things while they're seeing things. And that's a, a credit to you guys as, as, as therapists and as, you know, partners on this. And I also just voyeuristically love the behind the scenes aspect of seeing how therapy works and how you work through problems and kind of seeing their problems and how they reveal them to you and kind of hide some things. And then, you know, you, you reveal, they reveal more things as you explore. And, uh, you know, I think, I think it's great. And it reminds me of at the very beginning of this podcast, I asked you, you know, um, guy, what advice did you give to Lori and, uh, you know, and, and Lori, what advice you took and, and how good was it? And, and you, and you basically both were saying it's about, you know, feeling passionate about the message you're giving and, you know, having a strong message kind of translates to, I guess, strong presence on the stage, which I very much believe in. And you could definitely see that in the, in these episodes and in the, in this podcast, dear therapists, that you have a strong message, both of you that you want to get out there and it's a, and you do it in this very unique way. There's no other podcast like this. And I think it's great. I think everyone should, should listen to it. So I'm, I'm glad you're having fun doing it. Keep doing it. Yeah, no, we, we, we're really enjoying it. And, um, you know, there's no shortage of letters. So I think hopefully we'll keep doing it for a very long time because we want to get to as many of the letters as possible. All, all 7 billion people have letters to, to write, you guys. <laughs> so Yeah, so just a few left and we'll be through. <laughs> well, thanks so much for, for coming on the show. And, you know, Dear Therapist is your podcast. Lori, you know, you also have the Dear Therapist column in the Atlantic and maybe you should talk to someone, which is a great book that I recommend to everyone. And Guy, you have these TED Talks that have millions of views. You're, 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 you know, they're, they're so uh, riveting and you do the uh, Dear Guy column at, uh, at TED. Uh, is there any other things going on you want to talk about? Uh, for me, I have several books out there in 27 languages, so they're available kind of uh, all over the place. But I, I just want to say, for me, doing this podcast and being able to reach uh, like a wide audience and, and, and talk about things that are relevant to so many people with Laurie is, is an absolutely great uh, experience and opportunity. It's been very gratifying and it's, and it's very exciting. And when we look at our inbox and we see it's like being in a candy store Ooh, look at all these issues we can address you know and then we have to go and choose and and so it, it is something exciting that i hope we'll be doing for a long time great 
Well, I hope you do as well. Well, thanks, thanks again so much for coming on the show. Oh, thanks so much for having us on. It's always great chatting with you. Thank you for having us. Lori Gottlieb and Guy Winch and the Dear Therapist Podcast. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.